Welcome back to How to Tickle Yourself. I'm your host, Duff McDonald, along with my co-host, Matt McButter. Today's guest comes to us compliments of the power of serendipity. About 10 years ago, my ex-wife and I moved to the suburbs of Philadelphia, or maybe 15 years ago, uh, very briefly for her job. Uh, We were only there for about five months, uh, but during that time, I got to know one of my neighbors a little bit. His name is David Robertson. He's a former McKinsey consultant and current uh, professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management, where he specializes in innovation. When I met him, he was teaching uh, innovation and product design and development at the Wharton Business School, where I went as an undergrad. And at the time, I was just finishing my book on McKinsey, the firm, and David was finishing a book about Lego uh, called Brick by Brick, How Lego Rewrote the Rules of Innovation and Conquered the Global Toy Industry. Uh, Since David was an expert in McKinsey and I fancied myself at least some kind of expert in Lego, uh, we read each other's drafts and offered suggestions. But that's not actually the most meaningful interaction we had. Uh, The most meaningful one was when my marriage fell apart while I was his neighbor. And David was kind enough to be a support to an alcoholic in the throes of a life disaster. And he didn't even know me that well. Uh, There are many ways to identify good people. And that is one of them. Anyway, we've kept in touch over the years. And David uh, recently reached out and said he was working on a project that dovetailed with the themes of this podcast. He is a member of the Cherokee Nation and recently began exploring that heritage in earnest. When he teaches about Lego, uh, he's basically trying to tell us how to innovate like the Danish. Uh, And his work around the Cherokees is ostensibly about the same thing, what we can learn from them about innovation. But his insights into Cherokee culture touch on something a little more fundamental and go a little deeper. According to David, Cherokee community values are actually a thoughtful and nuanced language for talking about how we should treat each other, not just in business, but in life. For example, you should try to let the other person talk a little, especially when you're interviewing them. So without further ado, welcome to the show, David. It's great to see you. And let's talk about the consciousness of the Cherokee Nation. At the present moment, my love, my dear, oh, everything's connected. This life, this world, it's all right now, right here. Right now, right here. Right now, right here. Yeah, you know, Duff, uh, I think um, re- reading your work over the years, um, you and I have been on a, a, a similar journey from a different place. So you've written uh, very uh, uh, angry, <laughs> occasionally, critiques of, of McKinsey and of business schools. And I'm a McKinsey guy who teaches at business schools. Um, but it's kind of led me, my experiences have led me in a somewhat similar direction in a sense of... Um, 
In my favorite McKinsey project was when I worked at Volvo Cars, and um, we did lots of measurement to show that there's more efficient ways of developing cars. And we showed how how much an extra part costs, and and uh, how valuable it is to um, fill up your factory. How how factory utilization is a direct uh, influence on company profitability. And we did all that kind of analytical stuff, but ultimately, what we're there to do was to say. Hey, instead of developing one car, why don't you develop three or four at the same time? And it ended up being a very kind of human interaction where we had to show this this group of people that, you know, you, if if you separate people and have each group work on a different car, then you're going to get very different cars. If you have the same group of people kind of rotating around and working for a while on the sporty sedan and then working on the station wagon and then working on the SUV, the platform was the S60, um, XC90, S80, V70 platform that came out in the mid 90s. We uh, we in fact owned, yeah. uh, I think, two of those as your neighbors. We had the wagon That's right, and yeah. the XC90. I remember them well. Yeah. So what we learned is that you can develop three or four cars for the price of two, but you can only do that if you kind of get the human side of it right. And so just convincing people that they had to think about this broader platform and had to really think about how they could design, say, a seat module or an instrument panel so that they could reuse it and make, you know, the family station wagon uh, basically look very different, but underneath be the same as the sporty sedan um, was a very kind of human task. And that led me to a lot more focus on storytelling. And so the mm-hmm. Lego book was very much about um, this is the story. It was it was a hero myth. The book was a hero myth about the company that rose up and got arrogant, complacent, you know, ignored its customers and then fell dramatically and almost went out of business in 2003, but learned something from that about, you know, what what its customers really wanted and had to uh, um, really change its view of its customers from like kids that wanted blocks to, you know, people with who really wanted to live in a world and play in a world and create different variations of that world. And uh, among adult fans who saw um, the plastic brick really as their artistic medium, you know, that uh, the way a, a painter would use oil paint. You know what? It's interesting. I remember a line from your book where the guys at Lego said, it's not a game, it's not a toy, it's a system of play. Yeah, but it, right? I've, I've come to really uh, think it's, it's more than that. It's, okay. It really is an artistic medium for many people. It's a way of creating something uh, that's very three-dimensional, but unbelievably creative. What, what people can do with Lego is, is incredible. So I always felt very comfortable in these kind of egalitarian cultures like Denmark and Sweden. And, you know, I come, my, my father was very much of a Cherokee. I mean, he grew up in uh, Dust Bowl, Oklahoma in the 30s and, you know, had, uh, he looked like a Cherokee. He very much was a Cherokee in, in his values. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I mean, let's, you know, he was an innovator in that he invented division. He invented the way computers divide. The computer that you're using right now, uh, deep in its guts, divides two numbers using an algorithm that this skinny uh, 30-something Cherokee invented back in the 1950s. Amazing. 
And he came up with a, a way of representing numbers that nobody had ever done before, where instead of just zeros and ones, it was zeros, ones, and negative ones. So it was a twos complement representation that let the computer guess what the divisor would be in a division um, much more efficiently and ultimately had a faster algorithm that's, that nobody's improved upon since, you know, since he invented it in the 50s. And so this, um, this language that he created for representing numbers in the computer um, was really something new and revolutionary and, um, and led to him ultimately having a pretty big influence on the way computer arithmetic was done. He formed the, the first society of people interested in computer arithmetic. And a lot of the people in the, that society were his students or the students of his students or people he'd collaborated on papers with. Um, and one of the last meetings that he went to was um, they did this thing where they, they have, and I guess it's a fairly regular thing when a senior member of a community retires, they had everybody stand up who was a student of James Robertson and then a student of those students and then who had collaborated with them and soon everybody in the room is standing up. And so he really um, created this community of scholars that went on to start up computer science departments at places like Michigan and Penn State and so forth. Let's back up a second. So, you know, you're obviously when started looking into Cherokee language and Cherokee Nation from for personal reasons. And, you know, you talk about similar paths that we had for me. Uh, it wasn't till in Tickled when I started writing more about myself that everything changed for me. And my experience in deepening my understanding about everything, when I started, instead of focusing on stuff that was distant from me, f start pulling more, running it through the prism of me, did you have a, a qualitatively different experience looking into Cherokee um, language and values because of your own heritage? Well, when I started looking at other innovators, like there was a guy named Sequoia who invented the Cherokee written language. Um, Jesse Chisholm, the Chisholm Trail, uh, I think was an innovator um, in his own way. He was also a Cherokee. And, and then I started, uh, the, the Cherokee Nation is very good about keeping its language alive. Because they have a written language, they've been able to keep it alive. And they do quite a lot to talk about not just uh, train people in the language, but train people in the culture. And I heard a, a presentation by a guy named Ryan Mackey. His Cherokee name is Wada Galaswega. He talked about Cherokee values and community values. And what the role of uh, the individual is in the community, what the individual owes to the others in the community. And he explained my father to me in a way that nobody else had. He really explained why my father was different than other people's fathers, why he was so um, hesitant to criticize, why he was so generous. He was actually terrible at teaching uh, us kids the value of money, because if we said, hey, we want something, if he had it, he'd give it to you. Um, and that's you know, the Cherokee culture is very much uh, you show your wealth by what you give away, not by what you acquire for yourself. Just listening to this presentation about uh, the values of the Cherokee Nation explained my father to me in a way that uh, I hadn't really understood before. And it also explained these other Cherokee innovators in a way that that really helped connect them for me, that there was this incredible focus on community on the individual's role to support the community. 
that I think is is more true in Scandinavian societies than it is in the United States. When I when I gave a talk about Cherokee innovation over in Denmark last month, the most interesting comment after was, you know, we, we like the talk and, and nice perspective and something different that we haven't heard before. You should really tell that to more individualistic cultures like the people in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about the Cherokee language, because you were mentioning something when we were talking before, that it is, is sort of a fundamentally different thing uh, than, say, English. Can you take us through the, 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 the ideas you were, you were, you'd mentioned just before we started recording here? Yeah, so uh, there, there's two parts of that. Um, you know, first, there's really a, a revolution going on in our understanding of history, in particular, uh, indigenous history in the U.S. That, you know, there's this whole idea of noble savages, which was this kind of Eurocentric view of the Europeans coming over and finding these people that had not yet developed agriculture, for example, you know, that there were still hunter gatherers. What we're understanding now is that um, the Cherokees, like other tribes, were quite aware of agriculture and thought it was just too much work. <laughs> you know, they lived in uh, what is now North uh, Northwest Georgia, Southeast Tennessee, and um, they were able to cultivate the land in a way that let them collect the food they needed in a matter of days, a day or two per week. And they could spend mm. the rest of the time playing and talking and gossiping and flirting and, and, and governing um, because, you know, they set up their fish weirs to catch fish, their traps to catch game, uh, their, their, you know, places they could find berries and other things. And, you know, occasionally doing some farming and planting seeds that they saw agriculture and rejected it and really had a very nice life and had very sophisticated social systems and governance systems. Um, and when they came in contact with the Europeans, they looked at what the Europeans had for a society and they saw, you know, the, the critiques are really kind of devastating because they come from, you know, different native tribes are very different, but their critique of European society was pretty consistent that, you know, you guys fight and you talk over each other and you steal from each other and you're not very nice and you're not very generous. And yeah, you got better stuff, but no thanks. You know, we're happy where we are. <laughs> And wow. all that, what, what we're understanding now is that critique was actually very well known back in Europe that um, Rousseau and Locke and later Montesquieu and, and um, you know, the people who really started up this view of the Enlightenment um, and the view of liberty and individual liberty and uh, fraternity, uh, those ideas actually came from the native critique of European society. And so mm. we... Wow today are a lot more like native societies back in the, the 17th and 18th century than we are European societies at the same time. But those values led in a very direct line to the Enlightenment, to the French and American revolutions, and to where we are today. And so all this is kind of a long way of saying that the, you know, we, we are really understanding in an in a, um, important way uh, how sophisticated these cultures were not just in the the way they lived, but also the way they communicated, the way they governed themselves, the way they talked. And so when the Cherokees created a, um, a written language, when Sequoia uh, created a written language back in the 18, uh, early 1800s, 18, it took him about 10 years, he created a language with 86 different characters, and they weren't letters. You know, when you spell... Um, 
uh, a word in in um, in English, you have to use a couple of characters to get a sound. Um, in mm -hmm. Cherokee, uh, an individual character is a phoneme, uh, so it's a syllable. Um, it has uh, a sound, a duh or wah or something like that. But it's also a morpheme. It also has a meaning. You know, when we say worker, that's two morphemes. That's work, you know, which is a an individual thought, and er which adds to it and tells us that it's a person who does work. Well, in Cherokee, that would be two characters, two morphemes, which are also phonemes. And so it's a really sophisticated way of capturing uh, a way of communicating a, a, a natural uh, a spoken language. And it made it very easy for the Cherokees to quickly learn. So we look at Cherokee now, people who speak English, look at these 86 different characters. There's only 85, one has fallen out of use, 85 different characters. And we think it's really complicated, but actually Cherokee's uh, natural language speakers could pick it up in a month or two. Whereas, you know, people who speak English take years to learn the English language because we have so many letters to form a phoneme, you know, or a morpheme. Um, and so it was really a sophisticated way of capturing in written form the spoken language of the Cherokees. And that literacy has led us as a nation um, maintain the values, right? Because a spoken language carries with it a lot of cultural meaning. And so the Cherokees were quite uh, good at keeping their values alive, even after Andrew Jackson kind of decided everybody should walk from their homeland in Northwest Georgia and Southeast Tennessee to Oklahoma, you know, killing about a quarter of the tribe. Um, the written language helped keep those values alive. And so, you know, Sequoia's sophistication and representation of the language, I think is, a, is a, a reflection of this culture about, you know, connecting to the community and, and, and um, being very sophisticated about how you represent concepts in a way is kind of parallel to what my father did with representing numbers in a really unique and different way. My, my father's father uh, and mother were both uh, fluent in Greek and um, in Latin, both spoken and written. So Cherokee Indians who are fluent in Latin. In Greek and Latin, spoken and written. Wow. Yeah. And um, where did they learn? Where'd they learn it? Uh, my grandfather uh, got a master's in, at, from Princeton. Um, the Cherokees okay, were okay. quite literate as a tribe, right? I mean, the, the, um, the literacy in their own language led to a, you know, a desire to become literate and, and led to a governance system that, um, that helped them as a tribe decide that they wanted to negotiate uh, treaties rather than fight. Um, that, uh, you know, there's the famous uh, quote from Andrew Jackson of, you know, after the Supreme Court decided that the Cherokees were entitled to keep their homeland in, um, in Northwest Georgia, Southeast Tennessee, uh, Andrew Jackson famously said, well, let the Supreme Court enforce that decision and then made them walk to uh, uh, eastern Oklahoma. Um, it was something called the Trail of Tears and a quarter of the tribe died. But there is now, I don't know if you followed uh, all the, there's a Supreme Court decision coming down this week, um, which is about the rights of self-governance of the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma. Um, there's been quite a lot of, of, um, of movement in that, where the Cherokees are now working to get more uh, self-governance. The McGirt uh, decision from a couple of years ago 
basically giving uh, Cherokees a lot more say over the legal enforcement on the reservation and, and, um, and say, and we'll, we'll see where it goes with like who owns the oil leases on Indian land. Oklahoma owns that now, but I, I'm not sure that that's going to happen in a few years. Yeah, I'm getting off track. Um, we were we were talking to someone recently, uh, William Byers, a mathematician, and he was talking about bilingualism being a, a you know really beneficial to, to because it gives you sort of two prisms through which to grasp reality. Um, are what is your facility with the Cherokee language? Have you not very good? Uh, I'm starting to learn it. Uh, I'm just uh, you know I've read a lot about it, um, but I've scheduled an immersion program for the end of August, uh, so I'm taking online classes, and I'm hoping to learn how to write it and speak it uh, at, uh, this summer. Yeah, I'd love to hear back whether you can feel a different kind of power in it once you get more literate like what like what the if there's a you know a fundamental distinguishing thing between trying to grasp stuff in that and and in english i become fascinated with sanskrit because of my recent immersion in yoga and stuff and it it seems to me from the outside i'm dying to find a way to learn it um that isn't just pure remote uh, it seems like such a far more powerful thing than language or than English. Well, it's just the um, uh, the nineteen different words for empathy, or or you know, in a way, they're love in the sense not of, in the sense of romantic love, but you know, in the sense of uh, how do we treat each other, right? I mean, in in English, we have those five languages of love, right? That you know, if, if you really care about somebody, you should treat them the way they want to be treated, not the way we want to be treated. So maybe it's giving them presents or just paying attention to them or touching them or, or, or right, there's, uh, there's five of those. Well, the Cherokees have 19 of them uh, for how you should treat others in the community, you know, how, how the, what your obligation is to the others that you're, um, that are part of your community. And just the the nuance in the language um, and the degree to which it, it really, uh, they spend time thinking about that, I think is really unique and interesting. And um, I'll, I'll give you just one or two examples of it. Um, one of my favorites is uh, to be stingy with their existence. If somebody's a member of a community of our community, we should be stingy with their existence. It's the literal translation, but um, the, the way I've had it explained to me is that when you're holding a newborn baby, um, you want to be careful that you don't overstimulate that, that baby, that, that too much environmental um, noise, uh, whatever motion can cause a baby to get overstimulated and stressed out, and that we need to protect the environment around that, uh, around that baby. And as adults, right, we all have had that experience where it's just kind of too much and, and we get kind of stressed out. And, and that if somebody if in our community is being stressed out by, you know, too much happening to them all at once, we should help them, we should protect them. And I just thought that was a very thoughtful way of, of talking about how we care for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and where I'm trying to take that, uh, you know, what I try to do, and this is where I come around to defending business schools from Duff McDonald's scathing critiques. Um, I, I think people, you know, trying to develop new products uh, to serve customers could learn something from this whole idea that, 
maybe we should think about how people act in their communities, not this kind of atomistic view that, that uh, too often I see companies do, that we separate people out and we, um, we ask them questions, we show them the product, we get them to use it, and we learn something from that that's important. But we lose a lot of the kind of weirdness and irrationality that is the way we behave when we're around people that we care about. Right. Uh, one Lego guy I was talking to about this said, you know, when you when you take a, a Lego fanatic out of the community, you dial down the weirdness and you don't want to do that. Right. I mean, people we act um, the way we act isn't is affected by the people that we're with. And mm-hmm. uh, I think if we really want to innovate well, we need to understand the the values, the the social conventions, the the way people interact in the communities that they're part of. And we need to be more humble about saying, you know, what right do we have to be part of this community? And how can we serve this community? That brings up um, a great Lego quote that uh, I saw, was either in your talk or in your book or somewhere, Uh, a Lego CEO, one of them, uh, and I guess it might've been the one who found that humility uh, said, uh, your customers will tell you what you can do with your brand. Yeah, that uh, that came right after uh, Lego was almost bankrupt, right? So they, um, uh, 2003, they, they, they've just come off this period where they think that they're going to be disrupted by, you know, video games and, and digital play experiences and things and electronic toys and stuff like that. And they've gone off and tried to do that and basically just lost a ton of money. Everybody said, no, thank you. We don't want Lego to do that. And so they're trying to recover and um, they make another mistake. Uh, so they go back to the, the brick and they say, well, let's just try to make some brick based toys and recover kind of our core business. Um, because we know we can do that and we know people want that. So maybe we'll be much smaller, but let's just do that. And what they do is they refresh the colors um, and they uh, they decide to change the dark gray, that it's a little dated and they make it a little more blue. Um, <laughs> and um, I see where this is going. <laughs> the community goes nuts. I mean, think about if you're a fan of Lego Star Wars and you've been buying thousands of dollars of Lego Star Wars sets every year since they come out in 1999. And all of a sudden in 2004, that gray, the dark gray changes. And in 2005, that set, you know, doesn't you can't mix and match and make an extra huge Millennium Falcon anymore. You're yeah. furious. So they, they end up going to a... Um, uh, something called Brickfest in Washington, D.C. in 2005. Uh, I think it was June of 2005. And they take the the grandson of the founder, Kel Kirkus Johnson, and they take the CEO, uh, Jorin V. Nutzdorp, um, and they just spend three days wandering around this, uh, this Brickfest and they watch people. And they, at the end, they have this three-hour meeting where they're kind of humbly asking for membership in the community. Like we'd like to become part of this community again. We've kind of forgotten about you. We've, we've insulted you. Um, they realized that what they did by leaving the brick behind was kind of an insult to the values of this community. And they say, we'd like to become part of it again. And what they learned, you know, one of the questions they asked was, um, you know, you can buy a mega blocks brick for half the price of Lego. 
and it's not quite as good. It doesn't snap together quite as nicely. Uh, the quality of the plastic and the tolerance of the manufacturing is, is not as good. And, you know, should we do something like that? Should we make a low cost brick? And the community says, if you do that, we will leave this brand. We'll find somebody who makes the brick that we want. It's like, you know, again, it's like this oil painting. Should we use a cheaper quality uh, oil paint to make our our masterpieces? No. That's one That's one of the anecdotes from your book that I never forgot either. Uh, mm-hmm. The thing you were just referring to with the bricks, the clutch factor. Clutch factor. Yes, right. right. Yeah. So <laughs> what they learn is that the values of the community are very much about consistency and yeah. and and quality and creativity that a lego set should have a creative potential to it it should not have 20 pieces like the jack stone line from 2001 had um, it should have hundreds of pieces so that you can build things in different ways and take them apart and rebuild them and that creativity and consistency and quality values um, became the core of what Lego was going forward. And they built on that and built around that and so forth. But that, that meeting where they reconnected with the community of fans um, and really saw, uh, not, just, not just kind of heard about or talked to individual fans, but watched them interact with each other and watched how, how much they cared about this, again, as an artistic medium, not, not as a, um, a, a toy brick, a, you know, a plaything. Um, really affected how they went forward. Like in the last decade, I took Marguerite to this thing in Times Square. I'm sure you went to that, uh, where some artist had, um, he recreated a bunch of like artistic masterpieces, like Munch's The Scream and the Mona Lisa. I forget his name. Nathan Sawa. Yes. And it was so good. He did the cover of my book. Oh, sweet. Okay. Yeah. So that's not surprising. So um, you can actually make true art, like you can replicate, you know, the most famous art in the world with Lego. Did you know that these were Lego, these flowers? <laughs> no. That's amazing. I, 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 I was wondering if the world map behind you was a relief made out of Lego as well, isn't yes. it? Is yes. It Lego? I, th- I thought so. <laughs> That's okay. Really so we're cool. going to have, we're going to have to get those uh, images of both of those for the for socials. So as you just pointed out, right, there's the Lego sets and then there is what people make with Lego. Um, so I have a two part question. What is your favorite Lego set ever? Uh, I recently saw the Taj Mahal and thought that one was pretty mind blowing. And also what is the, what is your current favorite Lego creation that you've ever seen? Uh, I, you know, I think the answer, uh, uh, to both questions is the same. The uh, the Lego Aston Martin DB5, the James Bond DB5, is unbelievable. <laughs> the sophistication of the engineering underneath it, how you you pull on the, one of the tailpipes and the ejector seat goes, or you open up the top and you you pull the little lever and the front headlights turn into machine guns. The the degree to which wow. they were able to uh, with this limited medium, I mean, Lego, it may, it's very easy to do some things and very hard to do others. Uh, the degree to which they were able to create some of the mechanisms underneath the Austin Martin DB5 and still make it look like that that uh, car from the movies, it was just incredible. Um, so I, I'm, <laughs> I'm in awe of what that designer was able to do. Oh, I, I mean, I've been, I was a Lego maniac as a kid. I mean, but it it was kind of pre-kit. Like we would just get the blocks, right? And you would just be creative. And then it was a little bit, 
um, I guess after my my coming of age, when the kits, the different types of kits started to become like the 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 thematic kits and obviously the Star Wars and and all those different um, franchises came much later. We we had the moon stuff, right? The, those are worth a lot, stuff If you have them, you still. know. We, no, we had, but we had boxes upon boxes of them you know, yeah. when we were in the early eighties. Yeah, I did have one. It was called Lego with motors too, and it was just like a little. Um, it was like a a sort of little base, a little black base unit, um, battery powered, but that had a remo- like a wired remote control to it. And it would turn axles, and so you could turn it into tanks and cars and various things. It was that was probably my favorite and the most memorable piece that I had as a kid. But now, I mean, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and now looking at some of these massive Star Wars pieces is is just mind blowing. I mean, there's a Imperial destroyer that's you know about three feet long. There's yes. the, there's the the Death Star that I've seen at at uh, local um uh, like game shop uh, here in Toronto. Um, I, I looked it up. It's, I think it's, uh, 4,000 pieces, um, 2,500 bucks. Yeah. Um, have you, you know, have you, have thing. you almost bought it? Have you considered <laughs> buying it? That That's an investment. <laughs> Don't get it. Uh, it's, no. it's, uh, the, the death star is badly designed. The millennium oh, really? Falcon. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a lot of science to designing a Lego kit and the death star, yeah. uh, pieces just randomly fall off it. Um, whereas okay. the millennium Falcon is more durable and, and, um, it's just as big and just as impressive. Too. Yeah. Yeah. The 2017 one, um, 7,500 pieces, uh, the Millennium Falcon. And it's it's got, I mean, yeah, all the mechanics and everything, like, you know, the decks that open up and all the interior is 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 true to uh, true to the movies and stuff. It's pretty mind-blowing stuff. So, David, seeing as uh, we're both authors and we trade books and book recommendations, uh, why don't you... Um, Give us and our listeners um, a book recommendation. What do you What do you got for us uh, on the, on the topics we've been thinking of and talking about today? Well, you know, I'm I'm the typical dishonest person uh, when I answer that question. That I tend to read uh, kind of junk murder mysteries uh, at at night just to relax. But I'll tell you one book that really just blew me away, a more serious book, which is The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. Um, What they do is they go back and they really look at what we think we know about indigenous societies and how they affected uh, European society. And it's, it's kind of a summary of this rethinking of history that just blew me away. Um, just the the whole formation of European society and how much it was influenced by um, Native societies is really astounding. And it's a, it's a masterpiece of a book. The late David Graeber is one of the authors of that. Yes. And I loved, he wrote uh, that book, Bullshit Jobs, which was clearly not as ambitious an effort, but a very insightful book too. Thank you for that. I'll, I'll look forward to reading that. Doesn't he have some famous one on debt too? Yes, he does. Yeah. Debt, the first 5,000 years. Okay. Yeah, no, he, he's a big thinker, that guy. Anyway, uh, we're running a little short on time here. David, it's been great to talk to you again. And um, I really um, am kind of blown away by your ability to move from different sort of... Um, whether it's languages or frameworks of thinking about stuff like uh, from, from Lego to the Cherokee nation, but also to sort of draw out the, 
the sort of parallels in them. And I guess that might be something they teach at business schools. <laughs> it, it actually is. You know, MIT, uh, as quantitative as it is, uh, has this amazing set of ethnographers that start with John von Manen and, and Vonda Orlikowski, that who, people who say, the, if you really want to understand a, a business, that you need to understand the community and the, and the people and the way people interact within it. Um, both uh, uh, when I started my PhD program, my first class was with John Van Manen and one of my fellow uh, new doctoral students, Nitin Noraya, uh, is, uh, is a mutual friend, uh, Duff. That's interesting. I actually spoke to John Van Manen for The Golden Passport. He's quoted in there. I talked to him about leadership. Terrific guy. In any case, you're welcome to have me. I'll come up and talk to the people at MIT. I'd love to be a guest lecturer at a business school. <laughs> uh, it's been great having you. Thank you for, for spending time with us. And um, listeners, check out, uh, if, if you are a Lego fan, uh, his book, Brick by Brick, is um, it's a it's a businessy book, uh, but it's definitely a story, as David said. And for for anyone who is obsessed about Lego, it's a joy to read. Thanks for coming and best of luck, David. OK, it's been a real pleasure. Thank Good you. To see you again, Duff. Nice to meet you, Matt. Cheers. So, yeah, we didn't dwell on it in there, but uh David likes to joke about the fact that he is everything I used to rail against a McKinsey guy and a business school professor. Uh, but as I said at the beginning of the show too, you know, I barely knew him and he was really helpful to me at a tough time. And he's a really interesting guy, right? That's, <laughs> I have to eat some of the, my words about, um, you know, uh, business schools and, and the ideas behind innovation and stuff. That's fascinating stuff. Agreed. Really interesting the, guy. I mean, obviously love the Lego, um, the Lego discussions. Like you can't really see it in my, in my dark tunnel under a rundle here, but one of those shelves back there is, is entirely full of Lego that, uh, that my daughter made. She got really into one of the franchises called Lego friends, which was. Oh yeah. Marguerite was into that. Too. Yeah. It, I mean, it was targeted towards, you know, sort of tween girls, right. Tween, tween girls and younger. And, um, and, and those franchises really are smart marketing, right? Because it's like, you know, she got the Ferris wheel and then the Ferris wheel is part of an amusement park. She was like, oh, well, now I want the roller coaster and now I want the, um, you know, the scrambler and all the different rides so that she could build the whole amusement park. And the same thing with the ski hill, right? Like there was, there was like the chairlift. Oh, yeah. Marguerite got the Grand Hotel. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that uh, one. I don't think we had that. Yeah. David is the one who pointed me when Marguerite was obsessed. So this is not that long ago. He pointed me to the fact that there is a whole secondary market in bulk Lego online. Yeah. Well, you know what? I thought it was wild. I, I, we have a Lego store at, at, at one of the local malls here at Fairview. And you can go in and, um, you know, and you, you can go and you can order all the missing pieces. And I was like, of, right. course, of course you can, right? And they're like, you know, what set is it? And you know, you can go through the books and they even have like bulk, like they have like bins full of all the different sizes. Oh yeah. Yeah. They, the stuff. Times Square one has that too. Yeah. That where they, they'll sell you, buy you'll, the piece. you'll buy like, <laughs> like, no, you buy like a $10 uh, thing and it's the size of like a movie theater soda and you can put whatever pieces you want in it. Oh, I so yeah. it becomes a really tough call, right? Yeah. You want, uh, but 
I ended up with Marguerite. I was buying, um, I was bidding on uh, bulk sets of Lego from Salvation Army stores all around the country because people donate a lot. To, so I was in a bunch of um, like tight auctions for mm-hmm. like 30, 40 pounds of Lego at a time that you couldn't even see. It was really funny because when, when he heard I was writing my McKinsey book, he offered to read it. And I was like, that would be so great because I'm in a vacuum here. I don't know if I'm, it's an aggressive book, but I don't want to be wrong. Mm-hmm. I said, if you could help point out where I may or may be, have totally missed, you know, lost the compass, that'd be great. Yeah. And um, what I could offer him with his Lego book, I was like, I've been an editor, so I can offer you some editing ideas, but also just I'm a Lego fan. Mm-hmm. Um, Who isn't? I mean, it's such, such a cool thing. He, he was way more helpful to me than I was to him. <laughs> so I've got one for you. I've got one for you, and it's Lego. And people know this, right? The roots of which it's the Danish, comes from the Danish for let's play. Lego. Let got. It's like leg leg got. Lego leg got. Lego. Let's play. Anyway, people probably knew that one. It's a it's an old one and yeah, I did not know that it. one. Oh, no. So we'll give it to you just for teaching me something I didn't know. All right. And then another one, a second one. I've got a second. This one I I'd, I'd, I'd sort of thought of beforehand. The Lego one just came to me. But this one is in the classic vein of I've got one for you's where you don't really think about the, you know, the, the word when it has the, the prefix and it's distraction. I was just thinking about, you know, Lego's a nice distraction of like, isn't that a good one? Like you think you don't really think of distraction as being, you know, the The opposite opposite of of traction. traction. Like it's (laughs) like, I was just distracted or I just, you know, that was the Lego was a bit of a distraction. That is amazing. It's a good one. Okay. That no, that's a great one. That's in pure in purely in the spirit of I've got one for you. So yeah. I'm going to give you one back that is similar to that. Uh, we were watching uh, a French movie called Delicious, I think, about the first restaurant. Hmm. Uh, a guy, for, you know, back in you know the Versailles era, he cooked for some count, and he was. Um, thrown out of the manor and went and started as like, but up to that point, it was just like inns on the road for travelers, right. That we know from all our fantasy games. Yeah. Right. Do you have, uh, um, uh, an inn and a, and a meal and stuff. And it's supposedly, uh, now that I'm saying it, I don't even know if it's fiction or not. Uh, but like the first restaurant. Yeah. Yeah, that wasn't attached to an inn where it was like, all I'm going to do is cook you food. You can come in here, you can eat. Well, it was like different tables and a menu and all this stuff. And so anyway, it was in French, but I caught the word and I was like, oh, my God, I wonder if that's the same in English. And it is ingurgitate. Ingurgitate. So when you regurgitate food, you're basically, it's coming up out of you, right? Mm -hmm. To ingurgitate is to basically consume with gusto. It's basically eating food with the same force, (laughs) but the reverse force of puking food. (laughs) That's that's ingurgitate. Yeah, I like it. 
That's a good right. one. I've never heard it before. You're like, that's that's a yeah. delicious looking cheese plate. I can't wait to ingurgitate some of that. That's you know, you do hear people say inhale, right? Like, oh, I just inhaled that burger. But right. what they mean is I ingurgitated it. Right, right? exactly. It, yeah, so let's start fi- let's start fixing the what they're saying. So here's our Oriobindo. And um it's uh, apropos to something that David actually said in there before. And he was talking about uh, Cherokee values and and then moved into product values, thinking of the community, right? And he said, moving away from uh, uh, what was basically, he didn't use this word, but it was a dualistic perspective between company and customer to something that includes the customer in all their ideas. So moving from a, from dualism to um, to something more approaching a unity. So here's Oriabindo. The first movement of self-realization is the sense of unity with other existences in the universe. Its earlier crude form is the attempt to understand or sympathize with others. The tendency of a widening love or compassion or fellow feeling for others, the impulsion of work for the sake of others. But this oneness so realized as a pluralistic unity, the drawing together of similar units, resulting in a collectivity or solidarity rather than in real oneness. The many remain to the consciousness as real as the real existences. The one is only their result. So basically saying there is like you want you don't want just the sum of the parts. You want more than the sum of the parts. And here's where he gets to it. Real knowledge begins with the perception of essential oneness. One matter, one life, one mind, one soul, playing in many forms. This is the vision of all existences in the self and of the self in all existences, which is the foundation of perfect internal liberty and perfect joy and peace. So, if you can start to think of everything as one thing, right? Uh, And it's to what David was just saying there in terms of product, right? Instead of thinking of us and them and what we're going to give them, Think of what is happening in its entirety. You get closer to understanding and you get closer to peace and joy and all that good stuff. That's the missing piece for the business schools, right? Exactly. Teaching unity. Unity it's class. Unity. And it sounds like that's what David is teaching. Mm-hmm. And um, he is mulling over a book, which he told us about, which is, which, um, is going to look at some of that same stuff. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you next week with uh, another very special guest, Queen of Kombucha. Uh, maybe the most powerful woman in kombucha in the United States. And of course, I managed to track her down. So, Excellent. Thanks for listening. <laughs> we'll be back with you next week. Bye-bye. After present moments, traveling town to town, the mystery of emotion right here, right now. Right here, right now. Whoa, right here, right now. You've been listening to How to Tickle Yourself with your hosts, Duff McDonald and Matt McButter. You can help us by liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with others. You can talk to us and see what else is happening on Instagram and Facebook at How to Tickle Yourself. This program was recorded in Studio B of the historic Rock Ledge Recording Studio and the Tunnel Under Arundel. Right here, right now, 
Our original 16-part theme music was written and recorded by the legendary Paul Reddick and Kyle Ferguson of The Sidemen with the brilliant Steve Mariner on bass and drums and in the mixing room. The podcast is produced and distributed by Storic Media. Our editor is Andrew Steiner. Our coordinator is Samantha Abramovitz. Our producers are Kristen Verbitsky and Chuck LaBella. For more information, visit storicmedia.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-C media.com. My love, my dear.